doing what they love, doing what they're passionate about. Uh, my youngest, Lily, is uh, nine years old, and we got to go over to Baltimore and see her uh, involved in a gymnastic competition, and uh, it, was just, it was just a blast. We had a good time. Uh, my oldest, Alyssa, 11, um, she, we had to make it from Baltimore back over to Denton in the snow, um, and she had a piano recital. Uh, so gymnastics and piano, and, and, and I'll be honest, uh, these girls, they amaze me every single day. Uh, I'm very, very proud of them, not because they are great at what they do, although I think they are. I'm a little biased, right? Um, but because I see all the effort that they put into what they're passionate about. I see what they put into it all the time, all the energy, all of the effort. But I also see why they do what they do. They love what they do. But what Heidi and I have tried to do as parents is to relate to them that anything that they can do, they need to do their best because that honors their creator. It honors and glorifies God when they put their best foot Forward. So it's not important to us that Lily goes to the gymnastics and she gets great scores, although she has done that. And that's great when it com- that comes along, right? It's not that important to us that Alyssa will go to a piano recital and have a flawless performance, although that happens. We're proud of them for other reasons. There's a statement that I found that pretty much sums up what Heidi and I have tried to get through to our kids. And we're not perfect at it. But the statement is this, the important thing is about doing your best, not being the best. Does that make sense? The important thing is not about doing, it is is about doing your best, it's not about being the best. See, what they're after is they're after success, which by the way, aren't we all? Don't we all, all want to be successful in life and successful at what drives us? But being faithful in what we're doing is far more important than being successful. And so when our girls go into these different recitals and competitions, we, they make goals and they, they try to meet these goals. And they aren't about getting first place or, or being the best. It's about doing their best for the glorification of their creator. And so today, what we are going to see in our short time together is this. We're going to jump back into the book of Nehemiah as we have uh, done uh, about two months ago. We uh, jumped into the book of Nehemiah from the book of Ezra. And what we're going to find out is that Ezra saw some success, but we're going to see that he was faithful. And just to fill you in, if you haven't been with us and you haven't uh, been through the Ezra series and Nehemiah series, just real quickly, just want to let you know what happened in the first chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah finds out from his brother that the walls of Jerusalem and the gates have been torn down and they have been burnt. Nehemiah reacted to this. He was moved by this so much so that he mourned and he wept and he brought his petitions before God. And ultimately what he got was he got permission to go back to his hometown to help rebuild. And so we are going to pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 11. If you don't have your Bibles, it's going to be up on the screens. Uh, I know you have your electronic devices too. So if you're down and you're looking at your phones, I'm going to assume you're not playing Candy Crush. You're looking at the Bible. So... There, you do have opportunity to look in. So, Nehemiah here, verse 11, as we get started, we find that Nehemiah, he gets up at night and he has a mission. Now, I wonder, 
What in the world is he doing his mission at night for? I mean, his mission, by the way, which we're going to get into detail in a little bit, but his mission was this, to go back and to inspect the walls. He needs to inspect them. But if he was going to be inspecting the walls, wouldn't you think he'd want to go at a time where he would be able to see just a little bit better? I mean, it's not like he's got these big halogen lights. It's not like he can pull out his cell phone and put his uh, flashlight app on, right? By the way, that's like the greatest app ever. Now, everyone has a flashlight no matter where they are. I use that all the time. He doesn't pull out his phone. He doesn't have one. He probably has a torch. And so he's going out at night. Why? If you look further in verse 12, it says that he didn't tell anybody what he was doing. Look, obviously... If you don't want people to know or to see what you're doing, then you'll go out at a time when most people won't be around. That's the idea behind going at night. He didn't want to be bothered. So he goes in this mission. Verse 13. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on to the refuge gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem. His mission, as I mentioned before, is he found here in verse 13. It's also repeated in verse 15. And that is that he wants to inspect the walls. He wanted to see for himself that what his brother told him in chapter 1, which I quote, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and his gates are burned. He wants to see, is, is that really true? Remember, he grieved over that. He mourned over that for days. In fact, it was the catalyst that ended up bringing him back. And so he wanted to see for himself. And so he goes and he inspects the wall. He goes by the valley gate, the refuse gate. And the end of verse 13, what does he say? He says, they were broken and his gates were consumed by fire. What he's finding out is that his brother, he wasn't exaggerating. It was bad. And I'm sure as he is inspecting, as he's seeing it for the first time, all these emotions that overtook him from the very beginning, back in chapter 1, were starting to come flooding back. Because it's, it's one thing to hear about something, it's another to see it. We have that even in our own day, right? You hear about a tragedy that happened down the road, or maybe across the country, and it doesn't do much for you until you physically see it. For instance, have you seen the videos of the wildfires? Yes, yes. I mean, if you had just heard about a wildfire, you know, you'd, you'd feel bad. You'd, okay, that's, that's terrible. When you see it, oh my goodness. I mean, it... It draws out an emotion in you, right? And so he makes his way back to the wall and he sees it and and everything's coming back to him. And so Nehemiah, you can imagine what he's feeling. Verse 14, then I passed on to the fountain gate, the king's pool, but there was no place for my mouth to pass. That doesn't stop him. He keeps going to the gate, to the pool, and you can see why he does all of this. He does all this to, to, to show that he was thorough in his inspection. He wasn't just going to go to one area and go, yeah, it looks pretty bad. So, no, he he wants to make his way around. He wants to see what's going on. He's a man of detail. What he finds out is it's pretty bad. So much so that 14 says he couldn't even get by. He couldn't even get, whether he was on a horse or a donkey, whatever it was, he couldn't get by. There was so much rubble that didn't stop him. The, The inspection was difficult. It was difficult to see. It was difficult to take in. It was physically demanding, but he didn't let any of those hindrances hold him back. He presses on by foot in verse 15. I'm sure it was a difficult task as he's climbing over debris. And perhaps if you were noticing in verse 11, it says that he took three days to rest when he got to Jerusalem. Perhaps now we see he needed some time to rest up before he got on to his journey. Verse 16. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the rest of the work that I had done. He wanted to make sure that we understood no one knew what he was doing. 
And it wasn't just to keep it a secret. Because notice he says this, nor had I as yet told them. See, he was intending to tell them. He was going to tell them, but he needed to wait until the right time. He needed to see for himself just how bad it was. And you see it in verse 17. He says, look, look at the bad situation we're in. See, Nehemiah wasn't about keeping secrets. He wasn't trying to be a lone ranger. He was simply trying to develop a plan first. See, you can only develop a plan after you have taken an assessment of your current situation. See, the last thing Nehemiah needed was to go out in the middle of the day to inspect the walls and having people look over your shoulder. I mean, can you imagine you're looking and, and all of a sudden someone's behind you and, yep, yep, see what happened on this wall was, uh, yeah, that area fell down. Yep, well, let's, let's look over at this one. And you're like, what in the world? And, uh, so what do you think, Nehemiah? I think we can rebuild? I mean, it's pretty bad, right? Is it going to rain today? What do you think? You, you, you want my opinion on how to rebuild this? And probably Nehemiah would be like, no, I really don't want your opinion. I mean, the questions would have started. And then he would have felt the need to give an answer. And before he was ready to give an answer. See, what we know about Nehemiah is he is a detailed person. He's not lazy. One commentator says this, Nehemiah was to prove himself to be a hard worker, but hard work alone will not ensure success. It must be the right work at the right time, done in the right way. It takes planning, praying, and trusting God does not mean that research is not necessary. Nehemiah wanted to assess the situation before presenting his project to the officials and to the people. See, from the moment he found out about the situation, he was mourning, but he was also planning. For months he prayed and he planned, and when the time was right and when he actually had an answer, he was going to give it. He was not just going to show up out of nowhere. Some guy with something on a piece of paper that had a plan that was not going to fit the location he was in. He wouldn't do that. But so he had to develop a plan and then present it to the people. Verse 17, he says, look, the situation is bad. Folks, the situation here is bad. He says Jerusalem is desolate. That word literally means it's a wasteland. It's not good. The name of God is being despised. The people of God are being despised. And so what he does next is he brings them to a plan of action. He's done his inspection. He's figured it all out. And then he comes. He's, he's traveled months to get there, by the way. And now he has a plan of action. And he says, let's rebuild. I'm sure maybe someone from the crowd would shout out. Uh, what's that you say? Rebuild. How long did it take you to come up with that one? I mean, you traveled that long. You were out at night being all secretive. And all you can tell me is it's time to rebuild. Nehemiah didn't leave him hanging. Look at verse 18. He says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to, favorable to me and also about the king's word which he had spoken to me. Here's what Nehemiah does. And this is where things get interesting. He summarizes in one statement what might have taken quite a while to say. See, Nehemiah is a detailed person, but if you look at his writings, his writings not so much. He makes great points, but he makes them quickly. Not a lot of detail to it. So what was Nehemiah doing in verse 18? He was testifying about what God had already done in his life. See, the people were quiet. You know, he probably said, oh, let's rebuild. And then he waits and probably heard crickets. And people were like, oh, okay. Doesn't leave him hanging. He says, then I told him. And I can imagine what he said to them went something like this. 
You don't think we can rebuild? You don't think it's possible? I used to think the same way that each one of you did, but I've seen God work and I've seen him work in marvelous ways. When I heard how bad things were back here, I wept for you guys. I did. I wept for the reputation of God. I mourned four days and I cried out to God. And guess what? My God heard my prayers. I waited on him day after day and month after month. And he finally gave me an opportunity. An opportunity to speak to the king. Something that could very well have gotten me killed. But God gave me courage. Not only did he give me courage. But he gave me the words to say as I spoke. I could see that the king was starting to understand God was working in his heart like he was working in mine. And instead of getting kicked out, or worse, even put to death, the king said, Nehemiah, what's wrong? What do you need? So I told him exactly what I needed. The king said, you can go. And you can also have whatever you needed. I was bold in my request before him. I said, you know what? I need letters so that I can pass safely through the, the places that I'm going to need to pass through without being hurt. Not only do I need letters for that, but I need letters for the materials that we're going to need to build the gates and the walls of this great city. And you know what? The king granted everything, not because of my efforts, but because the good hand of God was upon me. And if God can cause one person like me to rise up, to be bold enough to approach the king, then God can work in the heart of the king and not only to allow that king to allow me to have everything to complete, but to do it and to do it well. Then won't our God be with us to, to, as we build the city Will our God not be faithful as he has been time and time again in my life? So I ask you, who's with me? Who will follow the good hand of our God? He should have led with that. Right? Shouldn't he have led with that? I mean, you can imagine you've all watched movies, right? Where the, the main character is trying to get people riled up and the music starts behind them and they start to clap and, and the music gets to a crescendo and they get to the end and who's with me? Who's ready? Who's ready to go? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. I'm imagining this is what happened when Nehemiah gave his testimonies. Why do I think that? There was no response until Nehemiah gave his testimony. There was nothing. Let's rebuild. Then he gives his testimony and what do they say? Let's arise. Let's build. Let's do it. Look, here's what Nehemiah had done. Nehemiah had taken an honest assessment. He came up with a plan of action. He gave a testimony. And now he is ready to move forward. And of course, what we saw in Ezra. What happens when the people of God move forward? Normally, some sort of opposition arises. Verse 19. They begin to be mocked and despised and even questioned. But guess what it does? It does nothing. It doesn't douse the flame that's burning now inside of each one of them, inside of Nehemiah. Verse 20, Nehemiah doesn't even dignify them. He says, you know what? My God will provide success. He moves forward in confidence, not in himself, but in the God who's provided time and time and time again. It's a great story, right? I mean, Nehemiah's passion was to defend the name of God at all costs. Whatever it took. No matter how much he effort, no matter the danger, it was God's name above his own name. And God's name was not only to be defended, but magnified. And he did this by fortifying the city, its walls, and its gates. His passion was contagious to those around him. My prayer is this. My prayer is that passion would be contagious as well. To us. Look, our battle is not over physical gates and walls of a physical building, but the gates and the walls of our lives. 
Our passion should be to defend those gates, to be sure that in our lives, God's name is glorified, that God's name is lifted up, not despised, not shamed, not desolate like the area of Jerusalem at that time. So the question is this, what are we to do? How can we be successful in our own lives? And by the way, there's no three-step program that's going to get you there. But what I did find is this. There are a few principles that we can glean from this account in Nehemiah. And it begins with this. It begins with an honest assessment. We're coming up to the end of a year. Another year. Is it not hard to believe? I mean, we're Christmas is around the corner. New Year's coming. I mean, it flew by. It was a great year. And you know what? At the end of one year, in the beginning of the next year, we're compelled to evaluate where we are and where we're going. Some people make resolutions. Some people make commitments. Others just say, I'm going to do better. Whatever it may be, it is important that we do that from time to time. If we never evaluate, if we never assess where we are, how are we going to know if we're doing okay? How are we going to know if we're on track to where we're going? It, it, it could be a job. It could be your relationships. It could be the, the, the most important relationship in your life, and that is with Jesus Christ. But I think these principles will guide you well. So you've got to ask yourselves, how am I doing? Is my lifestyle honoring to God? After all, isn't that what we're designed for? Isn't that why we were created? To bring glory and honor to God. So we need to make an assessment, but it needs to be an honest assessment. Why do you think retailers hire secret shoppers? So that they can come in and get an honest assessment of what's going on in their store. Nehemiah was a secret shopper. He comes in cold off the street. There's no, nobody can prepare for this. They couldn't hide the walls. They couldn't do it. There's no prep time. It was just honest and it was real. That's why having people in your life that can call you on certain things, hold you accountable is very, very important. And by the way, it's not everybody in your life that needs to do this. Only the people that are the closest to you, that you trust the most, you need to give them the freedom to help you be clued in to your blind spots in life. Pastor Larry and I have had conversations about these blind spots. They're, they're things that we can't see. That's why we call them blind spots. You know, in your car, you have blind spots. You know, as you're driving down the road, and okay, my, my seat's a little further back, so you're, you're riding down the road, okay, and you go to make a turn, and you look. You can't see Everything. Your mirror is just not picking up everything. If you have someone in the car, have you ever asked, hey, hey, can I get over? Am I good? Can I get over? Because there is a blind spot. It takes honest assessment of these blind spots. And by the way, blind spots in our life can really be anything. I mean, they can. Perhaps maybe, maybe our tone of, tone of voice is not very uplifting. Perhaps we use the, 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 the wrong language. Perhaps we just talk too much. Sometimes we can say one thing and something completely different is made out. There may be some things that we're doing that's hurting somebody else that we can't even see. Perhaps our pride, our own pride is getting in the way. Perhaps we need to start taking on too much and start handing off to other people. Or perhaps on the other side, maybe we need to do more and get involved. Maybe your marriage. Maybe your marriage is not God-honoring. Or your finances or your relationships. Look, the point is this. We all have shortcomings. We all have blind spots. And what we need is we need to start being honest with our assessment. And you may say, you know what? I don't really have that person in my life. Accountability partner. 
And not everybody does. So for you, it may be a little bit harder. We may need to put in a little bit more effort. I've also found that in my car, okay, while I'm driving, there's a blind spot. But if I sit up and I turn just a little bit more, I put just a little bit of effort in, and I kind of angle myself with the mirrors, there's no blind spot for me. I don't have to make a blind turn and potentially hit somebody. I can see whatever I need to see on my own. It just takes me making a little bit of effort, getting out of my comfort zone. Look, if we really want to know what our blind spots are, we need to be willing to ask the tough questions. Many of you are involved in our life groups here at YBio. Uh, it's a great ministry. Um, and our Friday night life group, uh, I shared with our group an uh, evaluation chart. Uh, had different uh, questions about how, how we are living. Are we living in a way that honors God? Because our group is going through a study called Defending Your Faith. And the challenge that we've been up against is this. That if we believe the Bible to be inspired and inerrant, and we believe that God is the creator of all things, that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again, then he is our Messiah. Then what difference is that making on our life? Because it should be making a difference, right? It should have an effect. It should affect the way you act and think and speak, your, your entire lifestyle, your entire outlook on life. It doesn't take an outsider to figure out if that's occurring in your life. Sometimes we need to look internally. You know in your heart, you need to be honest. It takes effort. Look, Nehemiah went out at night. He looked at the damage. He walked around. He climbed to get his answers. But I will tell you this. Before you do all that, before you rely on an accountability partner, before you, 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 you put in the effort just yourself or you ask others and you, you evaluate, you know what you need to do? First, foremost, most important, you need to bring it to God. Come before God. Be open and honest, just like Nehemiah did in chapter 1. What did Nehemiah do? He cried out to him, and, and he had almost a whole chapter before he even got to a request because he was praising him. He was confessing his sins and his areas of shortcomings. Ask God, and he will guide you. I don't know, I know what you're thinking. Okay, okay, I'm falling short. And the point is, yeah, we, we all are, right? So what do we do? What do we do when we realize that things are, are falling apart, that we have these shortcomings, that the walls are coming down, the gates are being burned? What do we do? Here's what we need to do. We need to come up with a plan of action. Nehemiah saw where the weaknesses were. And so he came up with a plan. And notice this, that we've already mentioned. This was not a brain-busting idea. He didn't come up with some trap doors and extravagant architecture. He simply said, we need to be rebuilt. Now, I'm sure, Nehemiah, being the detailed guy that he was, he had some plans that we're just not privy to. And we're going to see that. He has got some organizational skills we're going to see in the next chapter. But the concept was simple. He didn't try to make things any more difficult than what they were already going to be. It was a huge task. I'll tell you, we have a habit in our lives of making things a little bit more difficult than they need to be. For instance... Some of us may be thinking in our own heads, maybe, maybe the blind spot for me is, maybe I just, don't, I just don't know enough about the Bible. You don't need to come up with a 10-year plan. It doesn't have, need to be that difficult. How about tomorrow morning, instead of getting up and having your coffee and catching up on the news feed, have your coffee and get in God's Word and see what He has to say. I mean, it's not that difficult. It's not as difficult as we make it out to be. I'll tell you, if you do that, 
You will be so glad that you did. It will have an impact on your life if you do that consistently day in and day out. Not only have an impact on your life, but the people around you. It will have an impact on your family, your church. Come up with a plan of action. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, there's a lot of workplace drama where I work. Well, decide now not to be a part of it. Be a source of unity, not a source of disunity. You may be thinking, okay, maybe a blind spot, maybe areas where I'm struggling. It's, it's my marriage. Look, there's no quick fixes to anything. But you take an honest assessment of that relationship. You figure out where it's going wrong. And if you're like the rest of us, you'll realize, and I realize all the time, that when there's issues, it probably starts with me. So we need to be honest about our assessment, uh, self-evaluating, bringing it to God in prayer, putting your spouse first above all things other than God. You may be struggling with your finances. You, know, you need to take stock of where you're spending. Early on in our marriage, my old buddy Phil, he's since passed. He was great with finances. He came to our house and he, and he sat Heidi and I down and said, look, keep receipts for 30 days. I want to see where everything goes. And we kept receipts. We saw where every penny was going. We got a snapshot and we got to figure out, okay, where are the issues? We need to evaluate. And then after you evaluate, you need to be real that if we're struggling to put food on the table, then perhaps we can do with other things. Yeah, maybe if we're struggling for food, we don't need to have cable TV. I mean, there are things that can happen. There are practical ways we can look. Whatever it is in your life, whatever the problem is, the blind spot, the issue, we need to evaluate it just like Nehemiah did and be honest. Nehemiah saw that the situation was bad, and he called it out. He says, this is bad. He saw the problem. He came up with a solution, and then what did he do? He moved forward. That's what we need to do. We all need to move forward in confidence, realizing this. Opposition will come, but God is the one that brings success. Have you ever heard this saying? If God brought you to it, he will bring you through it. Anyone ever heard that one? So it's, it's, it's a popular, popular one. Oftentimes when you throw that into a sermon, people are like, oh, that was catchy. <laughs> that was nice. That'll preach. But let me tell you, just because something preaches doesn't mean it's right. And let's talk about that for a second. What we're referring to in that statement is success. Right? I mean, we, of course, want God to grant us success. But what do we find if we look in Scripture? Success is not always what we think it is. Nehemiah, when he responded to the critics, what did he say? He said, God's going to give me success. But he didn't know what that was going to look like. But he didn't know that God was going to take care of it. When we blindly say, the God who brought you to it will bring you through it, then maybe he will. But not in the way that we think a lot of times. When we think of God bringing us through something, we think of success. We think about everything being okay. For who? For me. I want it to be okay for me. The thing that works best for me. I'm most important. Aren't we? But is that consistent with scripture? There's a story in Genesis 39. You'll find a story about a man named Joseph. Not the Joseph we talk about this time of the year. It's the Joseph that God used to save his people. Joseph was successful. God showed him as a young boy. He said, you're going to be successful. And yet what we find out about him is his brothers hated him. They beat him up, threw him into a pit. He got sold into slavery and ended up in jail. Genesis 39, 23. Whatever he did, Joseph, the Lord made to prosper. 
the same word, the same Hebrew word translated success in Nehemiah. He said, whatever Joseph does, he's going to be prosperous. He's going to succeed. How many of us would call being thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, and thrown in jail success? Hmm. I wouldn't. But contrary to popular belief, and I don't want to blow your mind here, but contrary to popular belief, God's first priority is His glory, not our happiness. Although, don't we get a, a piece of that? God works all things for our good according to His riches and glory. His first priority is His glory, and yes, we end up benefiting from that, but we are not number one on the list. Joseph was successful at what he did, and what he did was bring glory to God. You know what Joseph did? He rose from that just the horrible pit that he was in. And he rose to the top in Egypt. He became second in command. And God used him to save the Egyptians, but most importantly, all of his people. Look, God will bring us through anything that we come to. It may be, it may be incomplete success in a way that we think. It, it, it might not. You, you may end up coming through a situation in complete failure in the eyes of the world, but God may say, you know what, I can use that. That's a, that's a great victory in my plan. See, God's view of success and our view of success could be totally different things. Look, I don't know. I don't know how God is going to bring you through what you're going through right now. I don't know what success looks like in your life. But here's what I do know. Is that we need to realize what Nehemiah realized. And that is this. No matter what, no matter what happens, we move forward. We move forward. If we are stagnant, then we are dying. We move forward in the strength of God and for His glory. We have seen Him work in other people's lives before, haven't we? We, we, we have His Word, the Bible, and we've seen Him keep His Word, so we have no reason to doubt Him. We've seen Him work even in our own lives. I'll tell you this, God is doing something special in your life. If you are a child of God, God is doing something in your life. And you know what? You should share that story. Much like Nehemiah did about his own, you should share it. I'll tell you this about our men's group. We have a men's life group that meets on Monday night. It's a real great group group of guys, special group of guys. Uh, What we go through in life, it's not always pretty, but when someone is seeing God move in their life, when someone is seeing God move in their marriages, they share it. They share it not to brag or boast, at least Not in ourselves, because each of us will freely admit we're as much of a train wreck as the next person. But we brag and we boast. But we boast in what God is doing in our lives. We're telling our story. We need to tell our story. Share our story because it may strengthen somebody else and it most certainly will strengthen you. I used to think my story was not good enough. How I came to know Christ was not good enough. I mean, I had an old professor who he met God in the the bottom of a ditch. He was face down thinking he was going to die. And God came and grabbed the hold of him. Man, what a powerful story. I've heard other people's people give stories with amazing endings. And and, but here's here's what's interesting. Guess where they were before they came to know Christ. They were dead in their sins. Before I came to know Christ, I was dead in my sins. Before you came to know Christ, you were dead in your sins. You cannot be any more dead than dead. Dead is dead and lost is lost. And what that means is this. That before any of us came to know Christ as our Savior, we were headed for a Christless eternity. And despite what other off-the-wall preachers or teachers, not in this building, may say, there is a real place called hell. 
This Christmas season, you can have complete assurance of eternal life with God in heaven. It's not based on what you do. It's not based on your church attendance. It's not based on our earning. It's simply a gift. And what do you do when somebody gives you a gift? You simply accept it. The gift of salvation is accepted when you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Messiah, as your Savior from sin and death, recognizing and believing that Jesus came and he, he died for our sins. He, he defeated sin. He defeated death. He rose from the grave. When you say yes to him, you are saying yes to eternal life and a life dedicated to him here in this world. And when you do that, Oftentimes people will say, you have been saved. That's just Christianese for people saying, you've been saved from separation from God. And when you are saved from that, I will tell you this, it doesn't get any more dramatic or exciting than that. That is a success story. No matter how the world defines success, you and I as believers in Christ, we know and understand that true success begins with God. It doesn't have anything to do with you and I. Success doesn't have anything to do. Look, success in a life for a believer has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God Almighty. So it begs a question. If we've been talking about success, all these things, and it has nothing to do with me, then what in the world am I supposed to do? What is my responsibility? And I'll share this in closing. Mother Teresa was visiting this place called a house of dying, where sick children are cared for in their last days, where the poor line up by the hundreds to receive medical attention. Watching Mother Teresa minister to these people feeding and nursing those left by others to die, an observer was overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the suffering that she and her co-workers face daily. And he says, how can you bear the load without being crushed by it, he asked. Mother Teresa replied, my dear sir, I am not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. Our call is not for success. God can handle that. Yes, you and I, we have a responsibility. We need to do what is necessary. We need to honestly assess where we are in life. We are to, through God's empowerment, come up with a plan and move forward in confidence with the one who can do all things. But at the end of the day, success is is not and should not be our main concern. It should be faithfulness. God has saved you and I for a purpose, and that is to be faithful and glorifying his name and not our own. Look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah was nothing special. Don't misunderstand it. He was nothing special. He was an ordinary guy, but you know what he was? He was faithful. He was a faithful guy. Look, as we inch closer and closer to 2018, my prayer is that our goal in this next year will have nothing to do with success, but everything to do with being faithful. The important thing is to do your best, not be the best. Do your part. Control the one thing that you can control, and that is your actions. And let it start today. Can we, can we do that as we leave here? Can we start it today? Can we make a commitment before God and walk out these doors and commit to honestly assessing our lives? Honestly, developing a plan, moving forward, but leaving the success up to God. May that carry you through this Christmas season, and into the new year. You want to be successful? It starts with being faithful. Let's pray. Our God, we are so humbled to read about the success stories in your word. And what we come to find out is there are areas in your word that you consider success when we look at it and go, man, if that was me, I'd lose it. But here's what we realize, God. 
your version of success and ours doesn't always match up. Lord, you've called us. You've called us to be faithful, not successful. Lord, and there are times when both things happen. Much like Nehemiah, he was successful in what he was doing, and we'll see that in weeks to come. But Lord, I pray for each one in this room, each family represented in this room. But I don't pray for success for this new year, for this Christmas season. But I pray for faithfulness. That they will be faithful and honoring you, glorifying you, and giving you all praise. Lord, that's our goal in life. And so we are so grateful for the opportunity that we get to do that each and every day. Empower us. Give us the ability to make these commitments. Give us the strength. Help us to rely solely on you. Because it's only through you that we can have success. And so we thank you for all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.